0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're in a series of studies in this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. You can find our text in the Pew Bibles on page 556. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 14. Ecclesiastes 7 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we give our attention to this portion, we ask for your grace and we ask for the light of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Most people want to be known as wise. And not foolish. And I suspect beyond that and better than that, most of us, I think, in this room want to be wise and not foolish. But what does wisdom look like? What does it mean to be wise? Is that something that's relative? Something wise in one situation may not be wise in another. Well, that too calls for wisdom. Uh, Sometimes wisdom can be a slippery thing, something difficult to get a handle on. Uh, I had a uh, definition I came across years ago of wisdom that I think is a good one. Uh, More could be said, obviously, but uh, it seems to sum it up nicely that wisdom is acting in light of all the facts and according to the proper values. Now, by that definition, God alone is truly and absolutely wise, because God alone ultimately is the only one who knows all the facts, who truly can see the big picture and miss nothing. And, of course, God, acting according to his own character, always acts with the proper values, with absolute and true righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't act and live in wisdom as well. And if we want to know what wisdom looks like, The best sources that we can turn to, of course, are the books of the Bible. And there are some books of the Bible that are described as the wisdom books. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It's very different from the others in that it often takes a look at wisdom uh, from a different point of view, sometimes sounding rather foolish in its search for wisdom. Uh, But often wisdom is set off by seeing what is foolish. But here in this passage before us, Ecclesiastes uh, reads a great deal like uh, the book of Proverbs. And in fact, these are Proverbs. They take a uh, pretty standard form for Proverbs uh, in terms of being a comparison. This is better than that. Now, the Proverbs can take all kinds of different forms as you read through the book of Proverbs, but most of these are made up of the, uh, it is better to do this than to do that, that kind of comparison format. Now, the uh, the title of this sermon is What Wisdom Values. Wisdom is a very broad topic, but our text narrows it down by looking at some of the things that wisdom seeks out things that wisdom sees as important. If we are wise, things that we will value, things that will be important to us, things that we will seek out. They're not always intuitive. In fact, many of these are not. Wisdom is, is, is often found in places that we might least expect. So what does wisdom value? If we are wise people, what are the things that we will value, that we will seek out? Uh, those things from which we will learn. Well, let's look at what the preacher, Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, tells us here in these verses. First of all, wisdom values a good name, a good name or a good reputation. If we are wise, we will be very careful to do our best to create and maintain a good reputation with those around us. Now, If you're familiar with Proverbs, you know that this is a a theme of Proverbs as well. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 1, for instance. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Uh, A good name is something that we will value and something that we will protect not only for ourselves, but to protect the good name of those around us as well. And there's a great deal that could be said about that in terms of what we say about other people, about avoiding gossip, about being very careful that we not uh, tarnish the reputation of someone to other people. But he just begins, a good name is better than precious ointment. Uh, We might say is better than fine perfume or expensive cologne. Um, Someone once said that you... Any restaurant you go into will smell good, but you usually go to the one that has a good reputation, Uh, and that's true. Unless you're just taking a shot in the dark, someone might say, well, this place was good. It's got a good reputation. You hear good things about it, so you go there. Any restaurant you go into, well, maybe almost any restaurant, is going to smell good, but only some restaurants have a good reputation. Well, a good name is better than fine perfume or expensive cologne. So that's one thing that wisdom values. Uh, Even above riches, he's not compromised, Uh, does not compromise a good name for the sake of anything else. The second thing that is mentioned here uh, is that wisdom values lessons learned from death. Lessons learned from death. He actually spends uh, probably more time on this than any of the other uh, elements that we find here. Look at verse Verse 1, the second part of the verse. The day of death than the day of birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Uh, Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 4, or rather verse 3, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Uh, One one translation sort of paraphrases this and says sadness has a refining influence on us. And that seems to be... The point here, it's good for the heart. Now, what is he getting at here? Now, this is one of those that's counterintuitive, uh, that we wouldn't naturally be drawn toward. Uh, we celebrate birthdays, and we mourn as we remember the day of someone's death. Uh, better to go to the house of mourning, to the funeral home. Uh, or, uh, before such things, maybe uh, the, the person's home, where, where the body was or was Prepare than to go to the party down the street. Uh, for this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. And that's really the point. Why is sorrow better than laughter? Why is it better to go to the house of mourning? This is the end of all mankind. This is where we are headed. And we learn lessons from the deaths of others to apply to our own lives. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of of mirth. So it's beneficial for us to think about death and to live accordingly. In other words, it's often more profitable to take a 30-minute walk through a cemetery than it is to, uh, to go to a party uh, or some celebration. Why is that? Because as you look at the dates, You see a life completed. Every one of those tombstones is a story, a story of someone's aspirations and accomplishments and achievements and disappointments and failures and losses and ultimately their death. And it reminds every one of us that our tombstone will have not only that day, the year that we were born, but it will have on it the year that we die. And to be reminded of our mortality is very beneficial for us, because most of the time that's something that we try to deny. One person who thought a great deal about his own immortality uh, at the ripe old age of 19 was Jonathan Edwards. I've uh, referred you to his resolutions before. And if you read through them, uh, it's striking how many of them have to do, one way or another, with death. Let me read you just a few of them, because they show some of the different aspects that... uh, we can come up with, as we think about it, his sixth resolution, to live with all my might while I do live. Because there will come a time, at least on this earth, when we won't live. Number seven, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. When We know that we are going into the presence of the Lord. The ninth resolution To think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now that's just getting down to it. To think of my own dying. Because it is going to happen. It will happen. 17. That I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. 18. To live so at all times as I think is best in my most devout frames... And when I have the clearest notions of the things of the gospel and another world. Again, not only of death, but of the world to come. 19, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. In other words, the return of Christ, uh, similar to an earlier one. 48, constantly with the utmost uh, niceness and diligence and the strictest scrutiny to be looking into the state of my soul. That I may know whether I have truly an interest in Christ or not. That when I come to die, I may not have any negligence respecting this to repent of. And then the follow-up, 49, was, this shall never be, if I can help it. 50, that I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. In other words, when when you enter into heaven... And I don't know how much of your life you'll think about or look back on, but to live as you wish you would have lived when you enter heaven. That's what he's saying. 51, that I will act so in every respect as I think I shall wish I had done, if I should at last be damned. I should enter into hell. With all of the regrets, all of the knowledge of missed opportunities to come to Christ... He wants to live as he shall wish he had lived if he ends up in the last day being cast into hell. 52. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. He died at the age of 55 from a smallpox vaccination gone awry, which says getting on up there in his day when life expectancy was shorter, but still not really an old man by any means. And then 55, to endeavor to my utmost to so act as I can think I should do if I had already, been, if I'd already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. So a great deal of thinking about how to live now so that we won't have regrets then. When we reach our death, the hour of our death, when we even step into heaven, or if we are outside of Christ into hell itself, to live as we shall wish we had lived. It has a way of reordering your priorities, doesn't it? Death has a way of restructuring things. When faced with death, it's interesting how stuff becomes less important, people become more important. Why not live it that way anyway? Well, that's another of his observations, the things that the wise value. They, they value the lessons that they learn from contemplating death, observing the death of others, as well as contemplating their own. The third thing he mentions here, the, 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 the wise value a deserved rebuke. Now, nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes to be upbraided or confronted about sin or shortcomings or failures None of us likes that at all. But the wise recognize the value in it. Look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Proverbs have a great deal to uh, say about this. Uh, Let me read you just a few. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. 15 verse 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. 17 verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. If you're wise, a few words of admonition will move you more than a hundred strokes on the back of a fool. 25, verse 12. Again, book of Proverbs, 25, verse 12. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And then 29, verse 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. In other words, having no argument, he makes a lot of noise. He becomes abusive or hostile, uh, whatever the case might be. Uh, verse 6, the point seems to be that the, the fool's laughter has no connection with reality. One person paraphrases it this way. He says, thistles provide quick flames, uh, little heat, and a lot of unpleasant noise. Um The wise value, a deserved and pointed rebuke. We take that to heart. And what about criticism? Sometimes when people are critical of us, we we do well to examine ourselves and say, is there truth in that? Is there something about that? Even though I may not like the source, is there something true in what is being said? So that I can repent, so that I can improve, so that I can turn away from what is not right and so the wise value a deserved rebuke. Number four, the wise value integrity. Look at 7, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is a difficult verse. Uh, the word can mean oppression. It can also mean extortion. Uh, the point, however, in a bribe corrupts the heart, point here seems to be that Uh, Wisdom can be nullified either by sheer force or by subterfuge, by bribe. Uh, Oppression, extortion, uh, a bribe can make even wise people do things that they ought not to do. But wisdom sees through that. Wisdom values integrity to the point that it will not be bought, that it will not be cowed by intimidation. But it will do what is right. It will hold its integrity. Fifth, wisdom values perseverance. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Uh, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Why is that? Well, it's generally because at the end we see the whole picture, right? As someone said, uh, the end means maximum reality. I know uh, in, in my youth, in all of us when we're young, we look ahead in life. We have ideas what our lives might look like. We have some idea of the kind of person we might marry or the kind school we might go to or the kind of work that we might do. And as we live our lives, we start seeing it. And when we come to the end of our lives, we look back and we know what our life looks like. We know what it contains. We know who we married. We know where we went to school. We know the kind of work that we did. We know all of these things that we didn't know at the outset. So maximum reality. We see reality as it is. The end of a matter. I was reading recently uh, in First Kings. And there's an interesting chapter, chapter 20, that has... Um, Ben Hadad, the king of the Syrians, uh, threatening and harassing Ahab, king of Israel, whose capital was in Samaria. This was after the Judah Israel split, the northern and southern kingdoms. And Ben Hadad uh, set a threat and said to the king of Israel, Send me your gold and your best wives and children. And he, he claims those as his. And, and Ahab said, Okay, fine. Uh, ben Hadad's armies were all out surrounding Samaria. And he said, Well then send out all the money that you have and I'm going to come in, we're gonna send people in basically to clean you out. And Ahab said, No, that's that's not that's going too far. Apparently he was willing to send his best wives out, but not his uh his gold and silver. So uh then Hadad says, Well, I'm going to I'm going to crush you to the point that there is not even enough dust left of Samaria for just a handful. Now Ahab was a wicked, unbelieving, vile king. But he did have his moments of wisdom. And his reply to Ben Hadad was, Let not him who straps on his armor boast as he who takes it off. In other words, don't brag until it's done. And don't let him who takes off his don't let him who puts on his armor boast as he who takes it off. Um, And when you've done it, you can brag about it. And as it turned out, God in his grace and in his tremendous patience with Ahab uh, gave Israel the victory. The end of the matter is better than its beginning because it's the end. We see what's been done. We have maximum reality and persevering to that end. Because until you get to the end, you don't know how it will go. Right, Jim? Right. Jim's a big Kentucky fan. Persevere to the end and find out maximum reality. Number six, self-control. Verse nine, the wise value self-control. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Uh, Over and over, Proverbs characterizes the angry man as a fool, the person who can't control his temper, the person who does not have control over his behavior as a fool, uh, anger is the result of impatience. Anger reveals you to be foolish. And have we not all had experiences where we've said something or done something uh, where we regretted it and where we felt indeed very foolish? Verse 10 is an interesting one. The wise value knowing and understanding the times. You may recall that phrase from 1 Chronicles chapter 12 where it said that the men of Issachar understood the times. Their value lay in that, that they understood the times. Now, look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, those of you who have moved closer to the end than you are from the beginning of life, Have a strong temptation to this. But we all do, to some degree or another, to look back with nostalgia. The good old days. You don't have to be old to do that. Children can do that. Look back to last year in school and how good it was and how this year is so much worse. Notice what it says. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? That's not a wise question to ask. Because as we look back at the good old days, as you start to analyze the good old days, you may start to realize that they may not have been quite as good as you remember, and today may not be quite as bad as, as you think. Because what happens is the stuff in the past, we tend to see and remember what was pleasant, what we enjoyed, what was good. The stuff now that we focus on, we tend to focus on what is bad, what is annoying, what is difficult. But the very stuff that annoys you now, ten years from now, you'll look back on again with fond memories as good old days. No doubt there were good times in the past. And no doubt things can be difficult now. But sin has always been in the world since Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden tree. Sin has always made a mess, made problems uh, in our world. And to have this attitude that somehow other, older days, days gone by are better than these days is either to be deceived or to be ignorant of, of history. Uh, culturally. culturally, politicians have always had their corrupt participants. I was struck when I read David McCulloch's book, John Adams, how vicious politics was in that day with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and others and the newspapers and the things that they would print and the kind of tactics they engaged in. Uh, certainly, uh, as as cutthroat, if not more so than what we tend to see today. Um, reading something recently, film stars—they've always been bizarre. They've always led strange lives. They've always been those in their number who have been outlandish in their behavior. Uh, ecclesiastically, the church. Well, you know, in the good old days when everybody was a Christian and there weren't any problems in society, and when was that? mentioned Jonathan Edwards earlier. Read the accounts of his pastorate in colonial America and the kinds of things he dealt with in his church and in his his town, which were at that time pretty much one and the same. There was immorality. There was strife and contention. There was viciousness. There was sin. He had to deal with the same kinds of things in the church people deal with today. Sin waxes and wanes in a society at the good pleasure of God's common grace. But we dare not look back at any time in the church and say, well, this was the golden age. This was the time when there were no problems. Because, dear friends, it doesn't matter what golden age you look at, colonial America, the time of the Reformation, there were problems, there was sin, there was pain, there were shortcomings, there were difficulties in the lives of those who lived then as now, and certainly personally. We can look back at times in our lives and see, maybe if you've lived long enough, see times when uh, things really did seem to be better for you, either in terms of work or personally, uh, and things may be very hard now. But as God's people, we don't live in the past. God is always up to date, and godly wisdom is always cutting edge. It's always moving forward. It's always looking at how I live now, not how we lived back then what does God call me to do? What does he call me to be now? Well very quickly, uh eighth, wisdom values, not surprisingly, wisdom. Verses eleven and twelve. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now Ecclesiastes, this, this is what we'd expect. He said, now, it's good if you have money and wisdom. And it is. It's a good thing. Uh, but wisdom will save your life. And in kind of an almost begrudging way, he acknowledges what Proverbs so gladly affirms, that wisdom is even better than riches. And then last, last ninth, wisdom values providence. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? in other words who can and he's been here before who can figure out what God is doing sometimes? in the day of prosperity be joyful in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Or to paraphrase enjoy the good days, make the best of the bad days uh, because we don't know what God has in store for us in the future uh, whether he's speaking here of the rest of our life or the life of to come, So these are the things that wisdom values, these, these nine things that are listed here for us in Ecclesiastes. Are these things you value? These are things that are important to you that he mentions here. Uh, a good name, to think about your own death and learn from that. Uh, a deserved rebuke from another. Integrity, perseverance, self-control, knowing the times, wisdom. And the providence of God, knowing that God rules even if we don't understand it. If you are wise, those are things that will be important to you. Let's pray. Father, we do want to be wise people. And we recognize, Lord, each of these is touched on here, but certainly uh, spoken of in other places throughout your word. And Father, we would be, uh, pray that we would be people who are characterized by this kind of real and biblical wisdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.